people who like to think of music theory as a post hoc after the fact thing that categorizes practice. So there's a there's a large distinction between music practice and music theory. And I tend to think of music practice and music theory as two sides of the same coin. You are listening to End If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, you are listening to that great podcast in the sky and if love remains and I am its messenger, Mike Lovett. Welcome to the show. Really glad to have everybody with us. Super happy to have the maestro of music, the prince of pianism, the man, the machine, the legend, Elias Axel Pedersen. Welcome back, brother. Thanks, Mike. I'm, I'm looking forward to today and the epithets keep growing. absolutely well we got to add a few more we're not quite there yet you know once we get to the king of sting and oh no we're good we're good (laughs) those who know know um but we're also excited to have a very long-awaited returning guest we've been trying to get him on and through uh scheduling difficulties mostly on my end um, we've, we've had a tough time, but really happy to have Tom Posen. He's a visiting professor at Idaho State. Is that correct? Uh, the College of Idaho. College of Idaho. College of Idaho um, in Boise, uh, Idaho. And uh, he, he's uh, got his doctorate in theory, music theory um, and from um, McGill. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I knew it was there. I just listened to that (laughs) and I knew it, but really happy to have Tommy. Most importantly, he's a good friend of the program. Really happy to have him on again. We have the best conversations. Welcome back to And If Love Remains, Tom Posen. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to talk with you both again. I always have a good time. Yeah. It's always always a party here at And If Love Remains World. (laughs) Yeah. Um. I wanted, to, I wanted to start out. I, I just I mentioned I just heard it the other day. What did I hear? I just heard a, a really wonderful interview you gave about Beethoven's Fifth, and there was one little remark that that you talked about about, um, and I and I actually was able to pull up the quote. It's from uh, Jean Michel Basquois. Ah. Right? So, so it looks French, anyway. But the quote is: "Art is how we decorate space. Music." is how we decorate time. And that really hit home to me. I think that's a beautiful quote um, and made me think about how I'm decorating my time. But, uh, mm-hmm. but Tom, what, talk to me about, you know, maybe about that quote where you, where you first heard it and how it, you know, how it hit you and what it means to you. Yeah. So I actually don't know uh, where I read that quote. I, I, I think I must've seen it on social media at some point. Um, but it resonated with my conception and kind of theoretical apparatus really well, uh, because what, one of the central things that I studied with Bill Kaplan at, at the McGill University was the idea of formal function. And, and the idea of formal function at its most basic is about uh, distinguishing formal units based on their temporal expression. So whether they express something that's a beginning, a middle or an end. And when I thought about decorating time, uh, we're, we're trying to, when we analyze music, we're sort of analyzing the piece in terms of how that, how that piece decorates the time. And one way is to understand how each element of time is expressed. And that can be in a, in a very rich hierarchy and it's kind of an architectural um, idea. And so I, I, I really, I loved that approach in as a, as a way of, I guess, talking about why I'm so motivated by analyzing music. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, that, that I really do appreciate that, you know, the idea of thinking of music as beginnings, middles, endings, um, what we as listeners, you know, equate that to. Like if we, you know, when I'm teaching a little composition to a student, you know, I might talk about like, 
an AB form and, and what the difference is. And it's kind of hard to explain what the difference between an A and a B form is until you hear it and you understand like, oh, there's maybe the question, there's the answer or, or you know, somehow there, there is a metaphor that kind of helps the student um, understand what these forms do and, and how we in, intuitively, because we've listened to music for so long, um, know, you know, know what they do. Um, and then, and then once again, like as we get more advanced and, um, you know, have a little bit, um, uh, you know, better maturity in music, you know, we, we realize how great composers can both utilize and subvert those ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think at, at, at its most basic, it sounds, it, it sounds almost naive when you think of beginning, middle and end at like very, very basic. Right. But let's say your, your day, uh, you start in the morning and that's the beginning of your day, right? But the beginning of your day consists of getting out of bed, turning on your coffee machine, at least in my case, uh, and making a, a breakfast, which is also something I do every day. I have to have my breakfast. But there's a, there's a beginning, middle, and end to breakfast too, right? And, and each part of that is this little routine I do that I enjoy. And so there's, and then you can zoom down into the beginning, middles and ends of each of those ideas. And so it becomes part of a, a, a rich hierarchy. And so you can, when you're zooming in on a piece, you can say, this is the exposition of a sonata. Now the exposition of a sonata is the beginning at the largest scale, but within the exposition is also beginning middles and ends. So for, for example, the main theme, a transition is more medial. And then the subordinate theme is sort of the end of the exposition. And so it's it's actually extremely rich once you start zooming in on the different parts and trying to you have to theorize about what gives what allows something to express its temporality and, and i think that gets you very close to this idea of decorating time how is the time decorated at this specific moment how what is it expressing yeah it's interesting you say that i also feel that um even when you zoom in it's sort of like a fractal almost but you mm. can zoom out. So if we're talking about the sonata form, typically we're talking about a first movement of a symphony or sonata. And then how does that fit into the larger framework? You know, that's probably a first movement of a larger three or four or five movement work, which is probably a piece in a longer program, which is maybe part of an entire evening. And yeah, you can, you can absolutely now. It's like that video, some meme has probably gone around many times where you, you start with a person and it zooms out to the cosmos, you know, and then it zooms into the <laughs> eye and goes into like, you know, the neurons and then the the quarks and whatnot. So, yeah, but it, yeah. it's beautiful. It's I don't know if there's ever an objective way to define um, the pieces of the puzzle. You know, you can say, well, this is the beginning. Well, that beginning can be split up into other beginnings and, and middles and ends. So right. I, I don't know if there's a way, and probably in your analysis, you've had to make some choices whereby you say, okay, well, this is what my framework's going to be for defining the middle or the middle. Uh, the middle of the yeah, beginning and the end. Absolutely. And actually, so uh, so my mentor, William Kaplan, I think really theorized well what expresses beginning, middles, and ends in the classical era. So especially Mozart, Beethoven, and Haydn, those three in particular. Uh, so one one thing I'm doing now is I'm I'm applying a simple uh, a similar framework to understand EDM, specifically Dead Mouse's compositions. And it, so it, it involves harmony. They're, they're actually quite intricate compositions and, and very large scale. I mean, some of his pieces are nine and a half minutes or something. So not your typical kind of rave EDM. It's a little, I would say a little more sophisticated than that. And But one of the things that I'm theorizing about right now is that in classical music, you go towards an end. So you go towards a cadence. That's your, your objective. So the beginning, middle, the end is especially well-defined because they use common schemata that always mark an end. So everybody knows when it's when it's over, you, you clap, right? Um, but in EDM, you don't want to mark the end. Instead, you have loops. And so you have a, a progression that loops. And so when you get to the end of the loop, you want to get back to the beginning of the loop. So you want to get to the repeat. So you want to blur the sense of ending. And so it creates a different uh, process. And so the, the ending is really about it's kind of a turnaround i'm calling it to get you back to the beginning not to a new start and so it's a new it's a problem i'm dealing with in a different repertoire um but i'm but i'm coming up with theories about how that might work 
Well, that is really interesting because, you know, in that genre, you know, what is the end point? And, and there's, if you want to think of a, of a piece and movement, you might, you might think of, you know, the middle section as a drop. And so what separates the, 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 the introduction and, and the main verse, you might say, to the drop, well, a lot of times you'll have a riser or a space even just mm-hmm. silence so that when it hits, you know, it hits, uh, mm-hmm. hits your body pretty yeah. hard. Yeah. And another, another thing I've, I've realized as I'm theorizing sort of this apparatus for, for EDM, uh, I, I've come more and more to think of music theory as a meta language that describes musical processes. So to be a good musician, you don't have to know the meta language, just like to be a good writer, you don't have to know all the parts of speech. What, you know, what's a past perfect participle? I don't know, but, but I can write, I can write one, you know? Uh, and so when, when I, when I see students that write poorly, for example, it, we as professors have to learn how to diagnose their sentences and pick out what exactly is wrong. So you need to learn some of the meta language to, to be able to dissect their sentences. So music theory is about developing this meta language so we can talk about the music without using abstract musical concepts. So I'm realizing how important it is to think about, you know, what is the perfect word that will serve as this this meaning, for example. And so uh, I've thought a lot about this and and how we define each section. So like the the term drop is really common in today's parlance and everybody uses this like, oh, the, the... the beat, it, can't, it comes from the beat drops. And so that's when the drums tip, most importantly, the bass drum re-enters the texture. But that refers to a moment, right? It's the, that moment in which everything comes back in. And so I've, I've, I've used the language drop section, which means it's a, it's a section which contains the kick drum. And so it, little things like this, just very precise language, allow you to talk about groups of units, the moment at which that unit starts, and then how that unit is distinguished from other units like a build or a rebuild and so forth. And so um, I, I've really come to, to to narrow in on this meta language idea. I think it's pretty important when you're trying to understand what music theory is. I, I love that concept of meta language. I would only add something that I, I don't think we would necessarily disagree upon, but um, when you mentioned a, you can write without knowing what a let's say past participle is, but when you study language, knowing what nouns and verbs and how you know what passive voices and those yeah. kinds of things do help. Where uh, same the same way that understanding what a form is, if you're playing a sonata, sonata form, knowing okay, here's where I am am in the structure. I'm going to play it slightly differently than I would had I not understood that. So I think we teach our students theory so that it does enhance their playing it doesn't replace it or, you know, doesn't excuse other musical nuances and body movements and, and that kind of technique training, but uh, it, it aids and helps. Yeah. I think. No, yeah. absolutely. I, I mean, I think, so I've been, I had to think a lot about this cause I, I just uh, published this article in music theory online, which is our, our flagship journal. It's online, freely accessible. It's called windows into Beethoven's lessons in Bonn. And so it studies, how Beethoven was taught essentially music composition, uh, piano playing and singing called solfeggio. Uh, so kind of his, his early musical education. And one of my goals in that article was to understand, well, to, to better learn how he was taught because I, I, I follow Joel Lester. Joel Lester has an excellent quote. He was a, a real famous music, music theorist. He's retired now. Um, but he says, that musicians understood what they were doing, or to put it another way, that musicians did not have to wait posthumous theories and the posthumous development of analytical tools in order to understand what it was they had been doing. So when we analyze Beethoven, for example, and we say, oh, this or this first four measures is a prolongation of tonic harmony. Now, this term prolongation was coined in the 20th century so clearly it's, it's not a word that Beethoven would have used. And, but I found in some of the treatises that Beethoven was studying when he was probably 10 years old, 10 or 11, uh, that he found essentially exactly the concept that we use when we say the word prolongation. And, uh, but he just read it, it the metalanguage was different. And so 
uh, Kernberger is the, the person who wrote about this, and he calls them durchgehende Akkorde, which means through-going chords. So you have a chord, uh, some middle chord, and then a third chord, and the middle chord is understand as a through chord. So it's it's kind of an in-between chord between these other two chords. So the first and third chord are structural, and the second one is not structural, it's subordinate to it. And so this is exactly what prolongation means in the 21st century. But Beethoven had a different meta-language and understood this, you know, very intuitively. So if you asked him, do you understand prolongation? He would say no. Uh, or doesn't maybe mean anything. he would yeah. say, what, what, what is it? Show me, show me a passage. And he'd say this. He'd say, oh, of course. Yeah, I understand how this works. Yeah. Yeah, theory usually, we say, it comes sort of after. And it's, it's a way to co- uh, codify yeah. things. But... Uh, but it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing because it's clearly he yeah. was learning stuff and he was doing exercises and fugal things and and melody and harmony and all that, uh, building chords and whatnot. So they kind of go hand in hand. But uh, absolutely, yeah. And I and I've, I've uh, in fact, so this will bring me to another article and just another anecdote that actually came to this. This is the crux of what theory is and does it come after practice or not? Uh, I, another article that's getting published any day now, the next week or two. Uh, it's called The Interaction of Mode and Psalmody and Galerian Circle. It talks about the development from the uh, modes to the major and minor keys. So, uh, and one of the disagreements that I had with one of my reviewers, which turned into a very lengthy debate of uh, an amount that uh, that was ultimately longer than the paper itself and wow. our back and forth reviews. It was, it was amazing. Uh, it was about 12,000 words, which is just crazy. Uh, but really what it boiled down to was a difference in opinion about what music theory is. And there are some people who like to think of music theory as a post hoc after the fact thing that categorizes uh, practice so there's a there's a large distinction between music practice and music theory, and I tend to think of music practice and music theory as um, two sides of the same coin. And so whenever you're you're coming up with, you know, when Beethoven's writing his piece, he's also reflecting. He so he comes up with a musical idea, reflects on how he might achieve this idea, and then executes that. And then his execution might involve more reflection. And so he's constantly moving between theory and doing. So there's a, there's a doing and a reflecting that's, that's always symbiotic with one another. And we like to separate these two concepts, but in fact, they're, they're symbiotically linked. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, I th- that makes sense to me from, you know, cause a lot of times we talk about you know, I know you've talked about the heroic aspect of Beethoven or, or even of genius in general, whatever that means. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do think we do have like natural attributes and things. But but if you're saying that the theory comes only after the composition, then it's really um, pushing that narrative that, you know, it comes from the sky and we receive and and here here's a composition now. Uh, interpret it for the for the rest of us, please. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and that's certainly not true. That you know, there there's so much work and so much um, um, reflection and 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 um, uh, symbolism. Even I, I I was talking to uh, Elias at one point about um, a Bach piece, and I wish I could remember the piece, but I believe it was a fugue. And how Bach would 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 use a melody, and I'm sure there's lots of variations of it. You find this probably everywhere, but he would, you know, over time shorten that melody, shorten that melody, mm-hmm. shorten that melody until at one point it he it's literally one note, and that one note represents the entire melody that was played from the beginning. <laughs> and and instinctively we kind of feel that, even though we don't hear that. That's that's what that one note means. That that symbolism. And in the same in the same way, you know, Beethoven or any composer is 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 using this rich Western music history to kind of like symbolize the composition into this one um, thing that they've created. Yeah, I yeah, there's there's something interesting about uh, like why I tell, I've been teaching composition at the at the College of Idaho, and one of the approaches that I've taken. Um, comes from my experience making EDM 
and watching uh, Dead Mouse make EDM because he, he live streamed himself producing and, and also reading from Beethoven's sketches. And what I find sometimes, it's almost like if, if I were to tell you to make a statue and and you said, of what? And it's like, whatever you want. Okay. Well, how are you going to start? And the way I would start these days is I would put a big rock structure outside and then I would hit it. And I look at it and think, am I closer to something that I'm interested in? No. Okay. Keep whacking it. And then you keep hitting it. And at some point you start to interact with the rock. Like it's you, a story starts to emerge and say, Oh, okay. I'm seeing a shape here that I want to accentuate, or, you know, maybe this needs to be abstract or maybe it's turning into something more literal or, or a representative of reality. Right. And so you, you start to interact with the thing once you have something to play with, but there has to be, an element there from which you can interact with. And so, and the same thing happens when you're writing an essay, you start your essay. And when I write an article, it's like, I have a theory. So I start my article and then it's not usually till the end of the article. I, so I write the article and I think, Oh, that's what the paper's about. And so I go back and rewrite it. And I do this, you know, five, maybe 10 times. And by the end of it, I get something that's very clean it's very readable and the reader never could have imagined that I went through all of this recursion to try to understand what this paper was about. Like, what is the essence? Cause it comes as reading very simple and like, of course, yeah, that, like this, this is just well thought out. Right. And same with these pieces they're, they're they go through many, many iterations to get to their final stage where they sound inevitable. Like every part of the article is logical and makes sense, but the path to get there was not, perfect and it went through many diversions and you had to test all of these different elements that didn't work which is why i think your unique knowledge in the sketches is is important in understanding that concept yeah i, I had a thought there because now my mind's reeling with all the stuff you guys are saying and it's it's great that's why i love talking through this stuff um two things one is before i was kind of uh referring to teaching students theory so they have a concept so it, it builds their practice they, so they're intertwined. But then the, mm -hmm. the idea that um, some theory can be post hoc. Um, and, and I think more of that with non-Western, let's say non-Western cultures where we're trying to go in and there is no theory according to our, what we consider theory that's been developed. And so we try to kind of put something on it or define it in some way. Like I'm, I'm imagining African drum rhythms when Westerners in the 19, what, forties, fifties tried to, or maybe, maybe like eighties or nineties tried to notate some of those rhythms and we just don't have the tools for it or the language for it yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I get, again, those things are going to start to grow and, and influence each other. So that was one thing I was thinking about just that, that duality. Mm -hmm. And then when you were um, just now speaking about hitting a rock um, and you don't know what it's going to be yet, but you might have a predefined form or an idea in your mind what it's going to be. Because I, I feel if you keep hitting the rock, maybe you'll, you know, it will go down to a pebble, pebble at some point. You won't have anything to work with. <laughs> right, um, right. What I'm very impressed with is when I, I watch everything on YouTube, but uh something where there's a big, you know, like a log, whatever. And it, this is going to be a, a bear somehow. And they just trace something. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, where would they have thought that that was going to be the place where the leg was? You know, and right, it's yeah. just these artists that have this incredible um, defined thing in their brain that they can map onto a 3D object and and just create it. You know, I can't even do that with, with drawing, with copying something. And uh, mm. I think... I don't know if that can relate to music, probably a little bit. Uh, I'm sure Be somebody like Beethoven had so many things in his mind that, you know, what what's original thought? What's an original idea? Nothing's really mm -hmm. original, uh, but maybe the way you use it is. So when he when he did the Eroica, yeah, there was a lot of new stuff in there that nobody had done. And I know we've talked about this with you before. Yeah. But that was all drawn from his his lexicon, you know, his toolkit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just used in a different way. So I don't know. It's, it's yeah. really cool to philosophize about this stuff. Yeah. One of the, well, one of the points I, I brought up a, a Beethoven anecdote, uh, someone asked him if, if he could compose a song. And, and I mentioned this uh, when I was talking on the, with the Boise Philharmonic 
on the radio station. And they asked Beethoven, can you compose me one song? He said, yeah, sure. And so finally, he, he, Beethoven actually sent back eight songs and wrote a note and said, I apologize. I've been very busy. I haven't had enough time to write one song. So here you go. And he sends all eight. And, <laughs> and I think yeah. this is the, the, the kind of gets exactly to, the, to your point that he has a craft. He could whip up eight songs, no problem. That's not a big deal. It's a craft, right? It's just like yeah. installing bathroom tiles or something. But yeah, if right. you want to make a, a, a really a fancy bathroom. shower, you're going to have yeah. to think about the tiles in a way that you haven't before. And that's going yeah. to require you to, to craft those eight, pick, pick your favorite parts from each eight, and then combine a, a whole. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I kind of saw that. One of my thoughts was with the Eroica sketches. And you know, there are parts of the Eroica sketches that are clearly not errors, but areas, areas that need to be polished or refined. Like you might do a sequence too many times or something, and, and then in the next draft, cut it out and kind of tighten it up a little bit. So there are areas where they're just, I would say, weaker. Um, but but there are a lot of ideas, musical ideas that could survive as their own pieces. So he could have very well taken one of those drafts, polished it, and then mm-hmm. sent that as the piece. And then he, but he basically retreated from that, and maybe saved that idea for another piece. Um, mm-hmm. But but there is something about having a craft, and so it's not that the rock metaphor, I guess is completely abstract. Like if you don't know what you're doing at all, but clearly if you're, if you're making bears out of stumps, you know <laughs> what needs to happen to get to the bear head, right. Or where the leg is probably going to be. Um, right. And so you have, you have this craftsmanship that you've developed over practicing the technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, um, what were you going to say? I, oh, yeah. I was, I was thinking about, you know, the, the idea of, of practicing and how, you know, we talk about different Beethoven, I think is a great example because it's kind of stark where he has his early period. That's very classical and, 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 you know, very kind of standard. Um, I mean, clearly not a standard composer, but he's using these forms very in a standard way more so, Um, especially compared to his later works, which is, Woo, <laughs> you know, not yeah, you know, so um, so different and and so wild compared to what has ever been heard before, and I it made me think of um, uh, someone who was 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 reflecting, um, oh man, I can't remember. I, I just thinking of a, a famous saxophonist, jazz saxophonist, um, Charlie Parker, mm. who who um, would you know he went into his modal stage you know, later on, um, but you can hear those influences kind of creeping in, you know, in earlier albums. And it's like, oh, okay, well, well, this is, you can kind of see in, in retrospect, you can kind of see where he was moving into, you know? Um, yeah. And I think, I, I think that's really true as, as we, you know, obviously we, we, we have to kind of like define, like in science, you have to make like, define what certain areas are or, or what a what a composer's life or or even what a genre is but at the end of the day it is a spectrum it is like okay where does all this fit and and um you know how does it enrich like what we're listening to and inform what we're listening to mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i have a quick question i mean on on all this since we're talking about how we see it and uh all these all these ways of, of defining it. Um, you mentioned how you've been studying a lot about Beethoven's upbringing and his studies. I wonder how, um, you know, in a, in an 18th century mindset, um, without the meta language we have today, what, what was he studying? What was he doing? Uh, how did he come to where, where he was at? And, you know, this person we call such a great composer today. Yeah. So, so, uh, I feel like there's two, two main strengths of the article that I recently published. And the first one is I traced pretty carefully, very carefully, (laughs) uh, Beethoven's connections and teachers and who taught those teachers and sort of I created what I called nexus of influence diagrams. And so I studied, I, I looked into basically all of the references from his biographies, from anecdotes, from his friends, uh, to, to understand who he studied at that time. 
And when you look at the Beethoven family, so Beethoven's father is often casted as sort of this drunkard who was very mean to his son, Ludwig Beethoven, uh, and was generally a bad guy. That's what he's casted at. But I think the story about him is actually far more complex um, because his father, so so young Ludwig Beethoven's grandfather, was the Kapellmeister in Bonn, meaning he was the musical director of Bonn. That's a big role to have. That's the biggest role to have. And so Beethoven's grandfather had the most important musical role in Bonn. And then you think, well, maybe Bonn is like a small little city compared to Vienna or Berlin or Munich. Actually, Bonn had one of the biggest music libraries during that time. Um, and so Bonn happened to be kind of a mega center in, in a certain sense for music. And so when you think about the stature of Beethoven's grandfather and then his son, his so Beethoven's father, his grandfather's son, really wanted his son to be an incredible musician. So he started him on lessons at a very young age and then also set him up with expert teachers to teach him. So he had, I think, four or five, six teachers working with him at, at an extremely young age. He was also, Beethoven was working as a young boy in the church on the organ. So he was accompanying the service, leading the service. And when you do that, and when you work in the church, you have to come up with patterns to transition between different parts of the liturgy. So you have to learn how to modulate. You have to learn how to improvise because you don't know how long a, a, a segment might last. And so he, he was working in the church at you know, probably 10 years old and probably accompanying. I mean, he was doing everything. And he also started composing at that time. Now, uh, there's the good ev evidence that he studied with several people, including uh, Gottlob Nefa. And when you look at Nefa, his Nefa's teacher was a guy named Hiller. And above him was August Homilius. And above that is J.S. Bach. And so there's a direct line from J.S. Bach to Beethoven's uh, one of Beethoven's primary teachers. And then when you look uh, on this, this diagram, you can also make a connection to the Italian school. So uh, Valotti, and uh, so he was in Padua. And I made this connection through Abeg Jörg Fogler, who, who was the Kapellmeister in Mannheim. Now this story gets even richer because in Mannheim, uh, when, when Fogler was the Kapellmeister, Mozart, landed in Mannheim and wanted the position of the Kapellmeister in Mannheim. But Fogler, Georg Fogler, already had it. And Fogler had just come back from Italy, having studied with the Italian masters. And Fogler was really pissed that he didn't get the Kapellmeister position. And so he called Fogler a charlatan. <laughs> and he denigrated Fogler. And now, historically, for probably the last 30, 40 years, maybe longer, Fogler has kind of had the rap of being a crazy kind of nutter like he came up with some good theories but he was also crazy and Mo mozart didn't like him and so he's kind of been denigrated but i i think fogler actually has had an extremely important role in the proliferation of music theory uh and he wrote this book that i analyzed in my article that was prescribed for use by all teachers in the palatinate region in germany which is a huge region including bonn so the the, the Beethoven had an extremely rich musical education as a kid, and he read these music theory books, I think. Uh, and there's actually some evidence that because he wrote some some notes from one of the books and wrote the exact same language from one of the books on one of his Bond manuscripts. And so I actually uh, have an image of that that sketch um, in the article. It's the first time it's been published to the public. It was held by the the Gesellschaft der Musikfreunde in, in Wien, so the the, friend, the friendly music society in Wien, they're friendly except they made me pay for the rights to publish that yeah, sketch. Sure, of course, yeah, I'm very sure. friendly with dollars, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, but all that. I mean, I felt like it was worth having that published to, and oh, and yeah. I had seen this this page referred to now twice. First by Gustav Nordbaum in eighteen eighty. And then uh, by Richard Kramer in, I think, 1973. And I thought, I need to see this. And so I saw it at the Beethoven House in Bonn. And um, I, was, I pulled out my camera to take a picture of it. And they said, oh, no, you can't take a picture. And it was a copy 
of the original, right? It was a black and white copy. So like not high quality, but I couldn't take a picture of the copy of the original because it was held in the Vienna. So long story short, finally, I got, I got the original. I have a high quality image and it's in the article. So at the very least, go check out example four. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that was a, a it's free online for everybody to see now, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess all this to say, and, and we can talk about kind of his specifics, but he was learning and reading the best theoretical books available at the time. And he was practicing everything at the keyboard, exercises, transposition, and he was singing. And so it's a coupling of, of singing, you know, solfege, do, re, mi, fa, so. And, but what's actually interesting is that Beethoven's solfege was using hexachordal solemnization. So do, re, mi, fa, so, ut, re, mi, fa. So you actually mutate on the so, uh, you don't sing, it's not septichordal, so you don't have a T. So okay. that's a whole other topic. I mean, that goes all the way back to the 16th century. And let's not even go there because that's a, that's a black hole. Um, but so there was a singing, there was a practical element, and then there was also a theoretical element uh, to his early education. Well, yeah, that is rich because now you're kind of capturing all of your um, – all of the practices that you need to become a great composer, right? You know, right. Then that's that's pretty yeah, well. And he was put he was put uh, under a lot of stress at the same. I mean, if you're performing with a church choir in a service for the public, and you've got to come up with something on the spot, that's that's pretty good training for sight reading, for getting tons of yeah. you know patterns in your head and your fingers and your your technique oh, better better uh, you know hold. Well, I knew he yeah. was known as a great pianist. Absolutely, yeah, and improviser, and uh, yeah, yeah. That 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 concept and knowing that he was a, an amazing improviser was was kind of the keystone of my dissertation because it basically I operated under the assumption that if he's such a good improviser, then his sketches, if he decided to write down one of his improvisations, that what he wrote down probably had something good in it. And that's a different perspective than thinking he's writing all crap and then eventually polishes that turd into a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Bach was a great, a lot of these people are from that era are coming from the church tradition. Um, Absolutely. Not necessarily that they're religious, religious. I don't know how Beethoven felt about that. Certainly Bach had a, you know, affinity for and, and believed in, in God. And I believe he was Lutheran, but um, he, that was important to him, to his life and his philosophy. But he was improvising all the time. And and a lot of those composers of that day and age were writing their own music, first of all, and performing their own pieces, rarely of, of others, maybe their contemporaries, uh, where we don't do that today. Um, and now we're not composing our own things, and we're certainly not improvising in, well, I don't in a know, classical I, tradition. I don't know, Jazz, um, especially at that time, how much, um, you know, how much a court composer or a court player for example, would be playing. I'm, I'm assuming a lot, but I can't imagine it being more than a church player. You know, a, pre, a church musician would be playing daily. You know, and and preparing for things weekly. You know, and that's. I, mean, I can't think of a better training ground. Yeah, than I, I mean, I think there's a lot of crossover with with Beethoven's duties. Like he was definitely working in the church, uh, but he was also working in the orchestra. Um, his friend Anton Reicha who was a very interesting composer uh, with whom Beethoven competed with in, in Vienna. They both ended up in Vienna. Um, but but there, was a, there was a group of about four uh, whiz kids, as John Wilson, who's a scholar, he was at Vienna, he calls them. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty rich environment for, for Beethoven as a kid. And just before I, before I leave the, the, this, we're, we're talking about kind of the role of the church. And... Um, the church had a massive role and it's hard to sometimes understand the role of the church in our modern day society as we look, because we, we kind of project what is currently happening in our culture today onto that time. But it's, it's a very different time period and the church has a different role. And I discovered this in a, in a pretty profound way, I would say, when I was researching the development from modes to major and minor keys. And I, I just wanted to understand how that path happened. And to get to, to really understand that in, in, in more detail than kind of the simple external like modes become keys more or less, um, you have to go to the church. You have to look at how the church uh, 
why the church cared about modes. Turns out they cared about them a lot. And it was because the church cared about modes that we probably still have modal theory today. Um, and that's also, it's extremely interesting. It's almost in some sense, the birth of music theory, because the church had to adapt a, a system for categorizing thousands of chants. And they also had to teach little boys how to sing these chants as rapidly as possible, right? If you're colonizing Europe, you better spread your chants. So how are you going to do that? And then, so the monks looked back to Greek theory and looked at those theories as a means of, okay, we'll start here and we'll adapt it and so forth. Uh, and anyway, it's, it's a little bit of a long technical story, but Great. all this to say the church has had a, a pivotal role in the development of Western music. In fact, uh, you know, that does bring up a good question in my mind of, because you do have those seven church modes that, you know, you learn and, you know, as musicians, you kind of figure out what they are. But what was the, do you think it's the key that, that made major and minor, you know, such like the, such a dominant the force dominant, yeah. in Western music? <clears throat> yeah. Um, Okay, so let's get into it a little bit. <laughs> Yay. Uh, okay, so from 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 my my understanding of this, we started with uh, essentially a pentatonic system. So when you think about singing, I think at its at its very basic, like you think about, okay, what's the distance between two notes? Well, let's try it out. La la nope, same note. La la Oh, different notes. What's that distance? Well, it turns out that that distance, like the smallest distance you could do, we can hear quarter tones and less if we train, but on average, the semitone and whole tone is kind of the closest notes that are that we distinguish between. And so the, the pentatonic system separates every note by whole tones, and then it has a little gap. In Chinese, you call it the pian or the pine. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. There's a gap of a third. Now you can you can fill in that gap of a third with a half step or a whole step. So okay, there's there's our pentatonic background. So we get the modal system, and in fact, when you talk about you, you said seven modes, and you're you're probably thinking of the the uh, Dorian, Mixolydian, uh, sorry, Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, Locrian, right? But those are actually the modern versions, and originally okay. there was only four modes. Oh, uh, okay, and they were called Protus. Uh, Deuterus, Tritus, and Tetrardus, so four modes. And then they said, well, we have these four, and then we have melodies that go high and some that go low. So we're going to make these four, and we're going to have them authentic and plagal. So then eventually you had eight modes, and then you had theorists develop a 14-mode system, and then you had a 12-mode system. I mean, you had so many different kinds of modal systems. The long story, though, basically is that when you they developed a system for chanting and so the way that the chant worked is that you would have a tenor and the tenor would sing something like uh, do mi so 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 la so so la ti do 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 right so there was this intonation and they wouldn't sing the solfege they would sing uh something Glory. sacred a psalm a psalm <clears throat> And so you would have the choir would sing something, then the tenor would chant, and then it would go back to the choir. And so there's a system, you have a, you have a song that's pre-written, you have a chant sung by a tenor, and then you have the song that's pre-written. So you have an antiphon, psalm tone, antiphon. Now you have this whole modal apparatus to control those three parts. So you, the antiphon is in a mode. Then you sing the corresponding psalm tone that matches that mode. And then you have this other thing. Now... You see constantly in the treatises of the of theorists lamenting the corruption of the singers. So they say the singers corrupted the mode because instead of singing da 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 da, they they change the note and and the change that they make. So they'll sing uh, F F A C C C C D C, and instead of singing a B, they sing a B flat. And that little change, because they, they're chanting on the note and they sing the B flat, no problem. Singers, as Glaren says, are flat all the time. The yeah, they, they're a little flat. And, and yeah. sometimes they do it on purpose. And yeah. adding that little B flat, instead of going from F all the way back up to F, which would be a Lydian mode, 
that B flat changes the Lydian mode into an Ionian mode. And the Ionian mode is the major mode. And so basically all of the, the modes turned into the major and minor keys because some of the half steps were changed. And it seems like that happened at a very early stage. And it has in part to do with the note that you're chanting on. And if you're chanting on a note, you want that note to be stable. And so for whatever reason, the lower note was tended to be a half step. Da, 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 da. And rather than the higher note being a half step. So the Phrygian modes lost favor, as did the Lydian. It's so interesting how like a practical thing, the voice, and how maybe going a step lower is, is affecting the th- how the theory develops. So it's almost the reverse of what we were talking about before. And also yeah. something you mentioned, um, just a little thing that I caught and probably others, and, and it might be having to do with that tetrachoral thing, where you go up to sol and then you start again at ut. When you sang the yeah. T, going back to do, you actually went to the five yeah. for me. Yeah. So I was like, wait a second. You didn't actually go to a true T or C yeah. in another language. And then I was thinking, wait, is this why German has like the, the H and the B, which is our B flat yes. and our B natural and B? Is that where it comes from? Yes. I don't know. Yes. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the, in fact, uh, I, 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 have, I have a lot of fun teaching uh, my students here because I teach them from a historical perspective. So actually, we don't start with septichordal solemnization. We use hexachordal. So they mm. have to mutate wow. like that. And the interesting thing is that hexachordal solemnization only has one half step between me and fa. And so it's, it's only me and fa. That's it. There's no, there's no T do, right? It's only me fa. So you have to switch the system every time you need a half step if you're singing a scale. Um, But anyway, Guido came up with that. He was in the 11th century and he came up with that to help um, singers sing chants. And he came up with the, the do, re, mi, fa, sol, ti, do comes from a chant called ut, quant, laxis, uh, which was an 11th century chant that, 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 I don't know if the chant is from 11th century, but that's the chant that Guido used in the 11th century to teach him. Now, um, yeah, so, but the whole, this theory and practice thing, they're, they're married to one another constantly because singers are corrupting the note and then the theorists are re-theorizing about what's actually happening. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, Stop adding and, that uh, blues note in there. <laughs> yeah, right. Come on, come on yeah. Mike, sing in tune already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, and, that, uh, it's an interest, uh, interesting thing. Sorry, a quick anecdote. Um, oh, go ahead. I don't know which uh, some YouTube video again, but it was talking about um, how oh, it was some sequence that can that gets higher and higher on its own. You you might mm-hmm. know about this. I think it was like an Adam. No, it wasn't oh, Wolf Tone, but it was like an Adam Neely video about, you know, you know, this whole thing where you have, and it comes, yes. I forgot what that's called, but it's like a theoretical version of that. And so what happens is you keep playing this four Shepherd chord. tone. A shepherd tone, yes. And so yeah. you play this over and over and it just keeps getting higher. You're like, why is it getting higher? And in an even tempered system, it wouldn't. On the piano, it wouldn't. It would just sound ridiculous. But if you're singing it and you wanted the just intonation, the way that the physics works out is one chord pushes the other one up and up. It it was really cool. And so he said if you have like an a cappella group, usually they'll start a song and they'll often end a song in a a higher key. It's it's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. But if they're playing with instruments, they always stay in the same home key. So anyway, just... So cool. Just a quick thing. Another part of this equation on from modes to major and minor scales is the introduction of instruments into the church service, uh, specifically the organ. And because as soon as you do that, you fix a pitch. And before in in my class, when when we sing solfege, I just say nobody in my class uh, has perfect pitch right now. So it's not a problem. So I say someone sing a do, do. Okay. That's our key, right? What key is that? Oh, let's, we're going to call it D major. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. It may, probably isn't, you know, uh, <laughs> and that's how they would do it earlier on in the church until you get an organ and you need to, pl- you need to sing along with the organ, right? Well, turns out some of those chants that you wrote were too high to sing. If you sing them at pitch mm-hmm. compared to the organ. So you have to transpose those chants. You have to move them into a different key. Well, then your system has to develop because you need the appropriate flats and later sharps to transpose freely. So, so the the yeah the, when the instrument came into 
uh, and to practice or and, and to use by the church, it, it dramatically altered uh, effectively the theory and, and the practice. Yeah, and then tuning would have been different from city to city as well. And uh, I mean, you had yeah. string instruments, so probably in the court you would have had violins and whatnot. Probably not early keyboard instruments, maybe some harpsichords, but they couldn't stay in tune much. Um, and and we're talking right. long before this, so you're talking from like Perotin and Leonin, you know, eleven right, right, so on. right. Um, and so then, it, yeah, it would be the organ that would be first. But you know, certainly there are mandolins or guitars or something which could be tuned up and down. And from city to city, there would be no standardization. Um, so whatever that the A is, you know, 414 or something, and now it's 440 mm-hmm. or 415 or whatever. Um, and then all the tuning systems that would have evolved from that as well uh, until you get somebody like Bach who says, okay, let's let's make something regimented. Right. Um, and what's oh, yeah. fascinating with that whole development is you get these keyboards, and I've, I've heard some live, actually at McGill. Um, I forgot the keyboard. Oh, nice. Yeah, you you know who uh, the keyboard instructor there? I forgot his name for a second, uh, but he played a keyboard that does have you know keys inlaid within other keys. So you get instead of twelve notes to the octave, um, you get twenty or whatever it is. Uh, right. And I, I guess the pentatonic thing that you brought up it reminds me of of uh, Bobby McFerrin's thing that you know <laughs> yeah. at the science conference is like every culture has a system of pentatonis pentatonization. And you have the octave equivalencies, but beyond that, how you split it, then different cultures start to diverge. Yeah. You know, in yeah. ragas versus you know. Anyway, yeah, it, it's that, amazing that, how this happens. That gets to a, a distinction, I think. That's that that I've become more and more apparent of. That I think some composers actually missed out on. Uh, and I'm going to call out Schoenberg on this, and, <laughs> and maybe, maybe school. Sure. And that's that. There is a there is a a melding of both our physiology and the culture. So there, there are elements that are, and this is like a nature nurture thing, right? We like to talk about nature as distinct from, or the nurturing, how, how would I say this? Like our intrinsic biology versus our environment. So the ecology versus the organism, but you can't separate the organism from its ecology because when you change the ecology you change the organism and so the two are again symbiotically linked. but yeah. we do like to talk about each one of these things separately like what role did the environment have on this person's upbringing like oh no it was the, it was the child's biology it was their genetics mm-hmm. that they inherited from their parents but as we're researching and stuff we know that the genetics can change based on what happens to the parents in their lives right so it's right. genetics is epigenetics and, yeah Exactly. The epigenetics and so forth. And so, uh, yeah. So that's something I've been thinking about. And, 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 oh, so separating practice from theory, like teaching it in its historical context, but also in, in informing my students that some of the things that I'm talking about are, are somewhat arbitrary and culturally defined, but not everything is arbitrary and culturally defined. There are some physiological things. And this comes up right away when I teach students about consonance and dissonance. So what's a consonant interval versus a dissonant interval? And I I draw a distinction between consonance and dissonance and concordance and discordance, Mm -hmm. where concordance and discordance are physiological representations. So if you hear beating, it's a discordance. versus a dissonance and consonance, which are cultural concepts that roughly map to discordance and, co- and consonance yeah. or concordance. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Because the Brahms, pro- you probably are familiar with that and, and probably partook in it, the Brahms project, uh, which was yeah. a symbiosis oh, between not. University of Montreal and McGill, but they did a lot of studies with um, BRAMS. Not oh, okay. Yeah. So um, I did a yeah, few so studies there. there. Yeah, and I, and I know some of the musicologists. I, I got in discussions with some because I was still in my my learning days, but also very headstrong. And so, you know, some of the colleagues there were, were going to sub-Saharan Africa and playing the, um, what is it, the Scream theme or whatever from from Hitchcock. The, the, oh, what yeah. was that from Scream, <laughs> right? That, that thing that, which to us, we hear that automatically associated with, you know, fear and terror. And 
and people they would play video recording or recordings of this if just wouldn't have any reaction like that doesn't mean anything to them because they have no context for it so our right. concept of dissonance wasn't the same as their concept of dissonance but there were that then we think oh well then it's all cultural you know but right. then there were some similarities there were some crossovers there were some you know things where both cultures did react in the same way but to diff- to varying degrees to the right. same item so yeah, and maybe it's the it's like what what type of um, meaning you ascribe to the physiological experience. Um, right. Yeah, I, I, I do sometimes wonder about the so the process of encoding when you're composing something, you're encoding information into your score, uh, and then ideally the listener will decode that information that you encoded, right? Yeah. And in an ideal world. Um, that would be kind of a one-to-one process and your transmission channel would, would be a real nice fat pipe, good bandwidth. <laughs> so everything translates, right? Um, like that. Yeah, it's not quite like that, actually. And, and I think you start to see that break down a little bit in Beethoven, in fact. And what's interesting, and I saw this with the Eroica, when the Eroica first came out, the reviews were not universally positive. In fact, some of them were like, this is too long. There's too much, too many ideas going on. And then you look at two years later, and one of Beethoven's kind of acquaintances, maybe a friend, I don't know, he probably got some tips from Beethoven, uh, Rochlitz, published a review, and he says, hey, you, you should really notice that the, the opening C-sharp, that's C-sharp. If you see it in the exposition, it goes back up, and, and it kind of creates the sensation that we're modulating the G minor, but then we don't. It's like amazing. Okay, cool. But if you look in the recapitulation, that C sharp moves down and we modulate to F major. Can you believe it? And he writes that and he shows the two passages right next to each other in the review. And after that moment, people looked at the symphony and was like, oh my God, there's these all these connections that I didn't initially hear. But now that I've been pointed to them, I can hear them. And and now this piece has unlocked for me. And then now this piece is a masterwork. And so there's this interesting thing where the transmission channel maybe wasn't clear enough, or maybe you needed to listen to the piece like a hundred times to, to hear this long range connection because it, it occurs over the course of 10 minutes, right? So you have to remember this, this thing that happened 10 minutes ago. But if you look at the score out of time, you can see it right away, right? And so if, if you're then informed about it, you, you can consciously make this connection about what happens over the course of 10 minutes, right? So you can sort of add bandwidth to your decoding channel. And I I think Schoenberg kind of took it to the absolute extreme. And you sort of have to study his his scores with extreme detail, his atonal works. I'm I'm speaking of like Opus 25 or or later. You have to look at the score to to decode the piece. You cannot simply listen. Maybe if you listen to a couple thousand times and you have perfect pitch, Sure, mm-hmm. but I sure don't, and I I ha- would have to look at the score. So then it becomes a question of how much should we be digging into the 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 stuff that we're not hearing, like the printed score, because that's not the music, right? That's like a representation of what the music should become. So compare this with uh, electronic dance music composition. So I, when I do that, that you're you're composing and you're performing at the same time because you hear every sound that you make. Right. So it's a direct to, to ear there. The translation is not you read the score and then perform it. It's I'm making the score and it's performing at the same time. And this is what it sounds like. Right. So the, the mode of creation changes. And so there's a lot of interesting questions here when it comes to theory and kind of how we decode music. I'm looking forward to the book, Dead Mouse and Beethoven. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I'm thinking about it. You should. It's quite a quite a marriage of characters. Yeah. You wouldn't. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's. It's not a joke. <laughs> you know, I'm no, sure it's, there's a it's lot not in a there. joke. Yeah, and in fact, uh, so last <laughs> night I came to this kind of crazy realization. If you'll indulge me just for a second, uh, I so I was working on the end of a, a build into a drop of my EDM section. And for, for I realized when I was listening to it, I loved the drop. Like I, I just adore it. It's, but it didn't hit hard enough. And I was I was thinking like why? And I so I spent several hours trying to figure out like why does this not 
just slam when it drops, you know? And I realized that the reason it doesn't slam is that the moment before, there's not a huge contrast in sound. So for us to hear a huge, loud, big thing before has to be a very quiet, small thing because we hear in contrast. And so I realized that some of my instruments were tailing over this little half a second break. And so what I did is I cut the reverb tails on all of those instruments. Literally, it's 500 milliseconds, a half of a second. So I cut mm-hmm. all of the sounds occurring over all of these other instruments and then played it through again. And it, holy smokes, the drop smacked me in the face. I mean, it had a ginormous effect. And I just was thinking about this. And really, the I, I didn't get goosebumps before. And then when I cut all those, that half a second, I got goosebumps. And, and it realized that a half a second can be everything. And then I was thinking... Oh my God, this happens in Beethoven too, because Beethoven wrote a letter. Uh, there was some string musicians asking him about a 30-second note in one of his pieces. And they said, did you really mean this? No, I think we think you're wrong. And Beethoven wrote back and said, no, it really should be this note. It's a 30-second note. I mean, we're talking about milliseconds, right? And milliseconds matter. And so when we're talking about decorating time, I mean, we're decorating all of the time. It's not just kind of like, you know, when that's the type of thought that Beethoven has. And I think if you, if you focus on even every half second, it, it's a little extreme at times, but my goodness, you'll get something that has a more profound effect. Yeah. We're, we're affecting art, right? I mean, that's where it just, yeah, that's beautiful, man. That really is. These people are um, dealing with, with units of time that actually the human ear can't parse really. Yeah. Um, or or bear, it's at the, it's at our limits, you know, I forgot our, yeah, the it becomes more of a feeling than a, yeah. Yeah. It becomes, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it's all a vibration. So when, <clears throat> when they do tests of how soon can you hear an actual pitch from a vibration and they take it up and it's, you know, 20 decibels and 40. And I forgot what the lowest note mm-hmm. that's defined as maybe hundred decibels. Um, and all the way up to 18,000 or 20,000. I mean, I'm older, so probably up to 16,000 for me now, but um, <laughs> right. I don't know. It's um, it's so amazing that that's corporeal, you know, and it's, it's really affecting mm-hmm. us. But at the same time, um, like as, as a mixer and, and Thomas, you know, this, like as a mixer, it's important to cut those unheard notes because right. it does mess up the rest of the track. You know, it can have yeah. an effect. And you want to clean those things up, and it's yeah. I hope you still have works. saved your file from the ones the the trailing over. So if yeah, you do so create I, some sort of book or, or article, you can take a photo of those. You know. So what I was so what I've been doing now in my own process is I'm trying to I've tried to learn from Beethoven, and um, what I do now is I I render my so I, I make a track, I render it so it's an MP3 file more or less WAV file. And I put that into my current session and that becomes my reference. And then what I do is I rework my track and try to make it better than the reference. Mm-hmm. And so I work on that. And after you know a couple hours, I, I constantly compare what I'm currently doing against my pre-existing version. And I get to a point where what I'm currently doing sounds better than my pre-existing track. Right. And basically at that point I say, I'm time to render again. And then I do it again. And it's, it's a it's a brutal process because when you listen to your previous version after you've improved it against that version, it's like, mm-hmm. thank God I didn't release that version because this one's so much better. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But then, but then but you keep, get to the point keep of those, save those. Yeah. Oh yeah, and so yeah, 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 I have a track now. It has 187 iterations, <laughs> wow. and and not all of these iterations are are like you know comparable or whatever. But, but when I think about it, like, that's not that it's the same as Beethoven. Like he has the same yeah. insane iteration over iteration. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to make Sketches. something that's professional, mm-hmm. that's what you got to do. There's, there's no shortcuts to this. I don't think a lot of people, that's a good lesson for today. I think a lot of people want shortcuts and, oh, use Grammarly or use this program or use this whatever. Sure. It might, it might do it for you, but uh, are you really getting it to your best level? And is there, is there an outlet that you're, that you're missing? Um, and yeah. how have you grown? You know, it's about the process too. So I, I think that's such a beautiful a heroic EDM composer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe Why someday. not? 
I mean, I'm, I'm pretty I love, determined. It's really true. Take it, you know, especially in a day of AI and and a day that you know we want everything done for us. I think it is pretty remarkable to to know that taking a craft and taking it seriously um, is is man, that's a, that's just a, that's a big part of making that decision to becoming an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and human. Yeah, so a very human yeah. thing to do. It, it really is, and I think it, I think that's one way of, for me at least, is having a, a very fulfilling life. And and you know maybe it doesn't for other people have to be around music, but it but it's about that one thing, and it's like, could you make that better? And you know, at a certain point, I, I feel like I want to say that. I'm not releasing tracks. I'm just, I eventually abandon them. <laughs> it's like, well, and there's a point of diminishing returns, right? Like probably render 200 is not going to be that much better than 199. So you better, you hope at least that you're getting close to like, and, and, and you see this in Beethoven's process too, like in his, so you have a sketching scores and then you have a score that goes to the publisher, which is called the autograph. And then the publisher has someone engrave it and sort of like copy edit it more or less. And you would think that the autograph is like going to be the final thing, right? No. Like you look at some of Beethoven's autographs, he's, he's working on the last second, like scratching out a whole page. You're like, holy smokes, you didn't know about this page and you sent it to the autograph? <laughs> That's crazy. And, mm-hmm. but, I, but you see that in the academic publishing world too. Like you, you write a perfect paper and I can promise you that that, that perfect paper that you submitted to the journal is not going to come out published like you submitted it. I guarantee it. Mike is gone. You are listening to And If Love Remains. Gone but not forgotten. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization. 